Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Hello, I'm Kellyanne Taylor, and this is the Radio Times podcast. Every week, I sit down with a celebrity guest from the world of TV or film to talk about their lives, both on and off screen. To my fellow TV enthusiasts, I hope you enjoy listening. On this week's episode is the comedian Jo Brand. Raised in Kent, she was a student at Tunbridge Wells Girls Grammar School and on a surefire path to Oxbridge. However, when her parents attempted to uproot Jo and move to Hastings, she revolted and fell off the wagon, leaving home as a teenager. She got her life back on track after she accidentally set the bedsit she was living in on fire and trained as a psychiatric nurse, a career she pursued until she had made a name for herself in the alternative comedy scene of the 1980s. The rest is history. She's a BAFTA award-winning actress, a national treasure and an absolute delight to interview. In this episode, we discuss how her nursing days primed her for a career in comedy. We had a lot of drunk people in who would just come in looking for some, you, you know, some tranquilizers or something. And when you said no, they would let rip at you. And you just had to stand there and kind of be as nice and calm as possible and manoeuvre them out in the best way you could, rather than saying, you know, look at look at the fucking state of you. <laughs> you just had to be professional. And as a comic, you can say anything you like to an audience because no one's stopping you. Plus, we talk about never having a life plan and why she doesn't watch herself on panel shows. Joe Brand, welcome to the Radio Times podcast. You just seem very professional to me, which I'm not at all. <laughs> I feel I'm out of touch completely with anything technical, which has already shown itself today. <laughs> oh, sorry. I know. Well, I'm ever so glad that we have Brittany, our producer, on hand at all times because 
I would crumble if left to my own devices. I haven't even got a duvet wrapped around me and I'm not in a cupboard, which is what I was told to do quite a lot during the height of the lockdown. Of course. Okay, so this conversation is going to go a little bit everywhere, but let's start first and foremost with what is the view from your sofa? Well, it's probably the most boring answer you've ever had. But um, (laughs) the view from my sofa, I've got a big window that I can see out of. There's a tree. Woohoo! And um, (laughs) a car. And that's it. Uh, And my telly, I think a teenager would say it's like a postage stamp. Because I think it's really big. But actually, compared to some people who have like half the wall covered by their TV, it's not one of those. And it's people would... People under 20 would sneer massively at it. But that was my aim when when we got <laughs> it, that they would do that. Make them sneer. What have you been enjoying watching on telly? Well, I hesitate to use the word enjoying, but I have watched The Reckoning with Steve Coogan in it. Uh, what did you think? Well, I thought the actors were fantastic. Um, I thought he was so good. As someone who is quite old and remembers Jimmy Savile from quite a young age, he seemed to have every mannerism and the voice perfectly, uh, which to some extent you would expect because he does impressions of people. Uh, But the movements as well, just so reminiscent of him. I thought, um, is it Siobhan Finneran was great in it? And Mark Lewis-Jones, who who played a very understated role in some ways as the sort of uh, manager of the, the hospital, but but I, mm. I also thought was great. And um, But having said all that, it just made me feel really depressed afterwards. I think that's the thing. Lots of people before it came out were kind of having this conversation of, should this be being made i think after watching it and speaking to people who have seen it the overwhelming experience of people watching that is it's incredibly upsetting i mean i I don't think they'd have done their job properly if it wasn't incredibly upsetting but you you can't use the word entertainment i mean i was very Mm -hmm. interested to see how they would put it together and i i thought the fact that that they actually had the individuals there who'd actually suffered at the hands of Jimmy Savile was very powerful, really. Mm. And also it's very shocking that so many people seem to know what was going on. I mean, it's almost pointless saying that because we already know that, but that he somehow managed to cling on to his position of fame and security at the top, you know, it's bizarre. It's terrifying, but it's also... (sighs) You know, and it's sickening to say, but it's not unsurprising in some ways. And, and it's not something that's been eliminated now. I don't know. I just hope that the world is, is changing. So maybe we're in a better place now to stand up and call out behaviour more. And maybe power dynamics are shifting. Oh, I think things have changed beyond recognition. Certainly when I was younger, I worked in some terrible places. And the the, the, the sort of low-level kind of... Um, disrespect for women was was appalling and if you didn't join in and laugh it off you were you know all manner of frigid old whatever um and so yeah i it's unrecognizable these days and i think it's definitely going in the right direction well there's that i mean it's been viewed on youtube 
thousands and thousands of times where you call out Ian Hislop when they undermine um, some stories of sexual harassment and you say, actually, you know, what we go through as women daily and even if it seems small, actually accumulatively, it's, it's not acceptable and it's something that men don't as often experience. And I think it's interesting because like you say, you know, some of the stories that I've heard parents, friends tell me about, like I, I had one where a lady was saying she was in the lift at work and her boss felt her bottom and all she had to do was laugh. She couldn't do anything about it. And that feels like a very, very distant cry from what I would ever expect in the workplace. Oh, I totally agree with you. But the, but the, the thing is, you know, I think back in the 70s and a lot of women who were around then talk about it and say, oh, we just laughed it off and sort of deny that, that it was that serious. Because I think that you were so mm. conditioned as a woman in those days to think, well, okay, that's supposed to be acceptable, so I won't make a complaint. And that's, that's what's changed. And, uh, you know, that's really, really good. I did make complaints, but it never got me anywhere. To bring it back to um, some lighter topics, although I'm sure we will get a bit deeper later, who controls the remote in your household? Well, nobody really. We're actually very democratic. And I think that my husband here, obviously, because uh, he's not left me yet, don't know why. And um, also my daughter, who's who's 20. And we very rarely find ourselves watching the same thing because we all have very different tastes. Um, she and I do watch things like Made in Chelsea together. Oh. I like it more than she does. <laughs> but, um, yeah, my husband very committedly, um, you know, like men do, watches a lot of sport. And I like sport, but I don't like wall-to-wall sport 24 no, hours a day. So I drift in and out of that. So, yeah, so we all we all control it when we need to. Yeah, I find sport um, intensely draining if I find myself getting into it. And I don't know how people subject it. I did go to the pub recently and watch Arsenal versus Man City. And I live in Finsbury Park, so big Arsenal area. And um, the energy in there, I felt like maybe this is where lots of people are getting their emotions out. You know, it's a safe space for emotion because the energy in that room, the highs and lows, I thought, I don't know how you subject yourself to this week in, week out. I don't either. I think men express very little on the surface in other areas of their life. And so it's just a, quite cathartic mm. and it's kind of legal, legally hating people as well, which I <laughs> so think a lot true. of people need to do. <laughs> Are you a big fan of comedy? Do you watch stand up or panel shows? I know some comedians have said that for them, panel shows can feel quite triggering if they've been on it. Oh, really? Yeah. Sarah Pascoe was saying mock the week the theme tune gives her palpitations. Oh, wow, okay. Um, I wasn't a big fan of being on Mock the Week because it was in the days when there just seemed to be too many people on it and um, there was kind of jostling for position, which I, I don't like doing. And mm -hmm. it, it just so I just didn't used to say very much, really. And, and obviously, in the olden days, you were very often the only woman on it as well. I think it's improved, and I think it's kind of very different now from how it was. Panel shows, I never watch myself on them, and I, do, I watch, I kind of watch the ones I like. I do watch Have I Got News. Why don't you watch yourself? 
I'll say this again in a nicer way because I think I'm shit. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, for goodness sake. I mean, you're literally called in every article that I read in preparation for this, a national treasure. You cannot be shit. They're all written by my mum. And um, (laughs) no, I I think the thing is... You know, you know, like, as a very young kid, like we had kind of tape machines, uh, which obviously don't exist anymore, but I couldn't stand hearing my voice. And I think a lot of people say that. And it's just kind of amplified a bit when I can see myself too. And, you know, as a comic, especially on shows where you're kind of called upon to be quick off the mark and to sort of string a sentence together and make it funny, uh, you know, at the drop of a hat. I see the bits where I was sort of trying to do that and it went wrong. It's the, it's kind of those bits that didn't work. Or I said something outrageous and then kind of thought, oh, I hope someone doesn't pick up on that. You know, all those sorts of things. Do you think also in kind of the age of social media, if that is perhaps exacerbated, because if you're on one of those shows, things can go viral in a way that perhaps... In the past, they didn't, you know, maybe it would have been picked up by the papers, but after a few days, it it would have died. Yeah, that's true. Um, But I I also think, in a way, being picked up by the papers is just as bad if you're the person that that it's kind of, you know, um, about, exactly. Whereas my daughters were so excited when I went viral, um, (laughs) you know, because of the... (laughs) because of the have I got news for you thing. I don't think it's happened since, and I'm pleased about that, because it's it's bizarre as a performer to say this, but I don't like having too much attention on me about anything. And and obviously the worst ones are where, I I mean, I am a bit gobby, and I realise that, and I do tend to say something before I've really engaged my brain quite often, and... um, but you can't you can't take it back you know and and so i either have to just do that and i do and i do apologize for the more awful things that i say because i think that you should do if if some people are upset about it but um yeah i wouldn't kind of cling to the morality of everything a comic <laughs> says is you know valid i was listening to this audio book the other day and it was explaining the difference between the etymology of celebrity and fame and i promise this is interesting so celebrity is to be celebrated for something whereas fame has more negative connotations of notoriety or you know it's something salacious and so it's so interesting that as a culture we're becoming less about celebrity and becoming more about fame. You know, lots of people become famous for being famous rather than for a specific skill or talent. I wonder, often when people are kind of shoved into the limelight for a skill like yours, being very funny, the negative that actually comes with it is the fame and that kind of being thrust into the spotlight. Because it kind of seems like a downside of of the thing that you enjoy doing. The caveat is that you get that kind of intrusion into personal life, perhaps. Yeah, and I, I, I think one argument, you know, that the that the tabloids use, for example, is that they say, well, you wanted this fame, you know, as if you were somehow really sophisticated at the age of 25 or whatever you were, and you knew what would happen and how it would be. And of course, you don't. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also don't agree that if if you do become famous or a celebrity, 
that you just have to take everything that's that's thrown at you. I think you're allowed to have your privacy. You're allowed to change your mind about things. Like anyone has that right. Do, do you know what mm. I mean? And it doesn't mean that just because you've done it once um, or you've encouraged it, you can't then say, oh, I made a mistake and I don't want that anymore. Mm. But that seems to be against the rules once you're catapulted forward. And I also think that fame and celebrity are much more kind of in categories these days because there's an awful lot of people that have millions of followers on, you know, on um, social media. Loads of people have got no idea who they are. Um, so you'll get someone appearing on Strictly and you'll think, oh, who's that? And yeah. it's someone who's got sort of five million followers. Um, and also it works the other way around, you know, because you get old people on. And younger people will go, well, who's that old boot or, or whatever? And um, so unless you're in a particular category, so shows where the, you know, the age range really varies, a lot of the people are watching sort of going, oh, like that at half <laughs> the panel or, you know, whoever, whoever's on it. It's like whenever I watch TV with my dad and I think you haven't got a clue. You haven't got a clue who any of these people are. Bless him, though. He's a good watcher. Um, <laughs> let's take it back to... <laughs> Sorry, Dad. Um, let's take it back to your childhood. So you grew up in Kent. What was the view from your sofa growing up and was TV watching a family affair? I can't really remember that it was, no. I mean, I think there were things that we watched like sort of very long series, like you weren't even heard of this, but there was something called the Foresight Saga, which I seem to remember I watched with my mum and dad, but my brothers weren't in the least bit interested in it because it was a sort of semi-soap, if you know what I mean. It was a slightly elevated from, from soap status. So, um, again, I suppose it was, it was kind of fairly, fairly separate football quite a lot because my brothers were very keen on football so um, I liked it when I was a kid and I still like it but I don't like it in that rabid way that lots of very committed fans like it so I can zone in and out. I love when people use the adjective rabid. It's are you, so are you a rabid fan? Are you a rabid <laughs> football fan? No. no, no but I did get bitten by a dog in Sri Lanka recently so I had to get four rabies jabs. Oh, my Lord. Yeah, there's probably an overshare. Anyway, um, let's talk about you as a as a youth. Um, I want to talk about ambitions and kind of if you had the idea that you wanted to go into comedy or what were the kind of thought processes. I know you were very studious up until perhaps a certain point where you went off the rails slightly. Yeah, absolutely. Um, straight <laughs> off. Um, well, I had a kind of also almost a sort of two part um, kind of school um, career, really, because I was very studious and I looked very nice and I was quite demure, blah, 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 all that. And I went to Tunbridge Wells Grammar School for Girls, which, you know, um, well, you can't get much more upmarket than that in the state school sector, quite honestly. Um, and they sort of were aiming me directly at Oxford and Cambridge as I came up to my um, O-levels. 
and it was all looking like it would be like that. And then, of course, it all went wrong, and um, I fell out with my parents, and I started behaving terribly, climbing out the window at night and going to the pub and that sort of thing. And so that everything sort of went downhill. My education sort of stalled a bit. It was because they'd moved to a seaside town to Hastings and I didn't want to go, um, but I was forced to because I was still quite young. And um, I, didn't, I didn't decide it um, consciously, but I just started being appallingly badly behaved and probably not very nice. So you turned it round after you set fire to your bedroom yeah. The place that you were staying. Don't, you made that sound deliberate. It was an accident, <laughs> and <laughs> it wasn't. It was a. It was like a bed sit. So it was actually where I lived, and yeah, it's terrible. I had a very bad experience. I was a, I was a secret smoker when I was at university, and I'd gone home for the holidays, and I was um, smoking, and we had this really old fence that was just falling apart, and I thought smart girl that I am I'll just stub out the cigarette on the fence <laughs> and chuck it over into the alleyway because then my parents will never know went upstairs had a bath doorbell rings once twice third time I think I best go down and, and sort this out so go down in my in my towel and um a whole brigade of firemen there and they say your fence is on fire and it's very close to the garage and we need to get back there. Oh, so they said if they hadn't have got in within the next few minutes, the garage where my dad's car was would have set a light. And after that, I thought, well, best be honest about smoking. And were you? Yeah, so I owned up pretty quick. I was like, I'm so, I'm ever so bloody sorry. Not someone this. set fire to the fence <laughs> and I've no idea who it is. <laughs> I would have yeah, gone down gosh. that route. Yeah, I didn't. I never played it smart. I'm way too honest. Um, so anyway, so that was the moment for you, which was a bit of a, right, okay, back on the straight and narrow. And then you became a psychiatric nurse. And I wonder about this because my partner is a doctor. And I think when he comes back from a day and I'm saying, you know, bloody hell, I only had two hours to watch four hours of television because I'm doing an interview and et cetera, et cetera. And, and he always, you know, listens and is very careful. And then I say, you know, how was your day? And he's like, yeah, not so good. And you hear X, Y, and Z of what's actually happening in the real world. I wonder, as your experience as a nurse, if that's changed your perspective in your career now? Oh, absolutely. It, it, it's, it's certainly done that. And I think it's, you know, being a nurse in, in a kind of South East London um, hospital with really a community that I would say was struggling. Um, you know, it was in many ways an, an eye opener to me because I'd moved up from the South Coast and um, we were just thrown sort of right into the middle of it all. And you know, some people's lives are just so awful. And um, it, I, yes, it opened my eyes, but I think it also kind of made me, hopefully, um, an understanding person and someone that treats people um, with respect. And also it made me appreciate what a ridiculous life you live once you, you know, once I did comedy and I started to get recognised and suddenly like cars would come and pick me up and 
people would fuss around me and they would buy clothes for me. And, you know, it, it was just amazing, really. But I, I do feel like I, I hopefully, I kind of keep my feet on the ground a bit and I'm fairly normal, in inverted commas, because I don't think anyone is really. This is your typical radio ad while eating a Crunch Bar. This is Automatic of Auto's Used Cars. This weekend only, we're having a whale. Bring the kids. See for yourself. It is huge. You're going to make a big splash. No other dealer can say they have a whale like this. When things sound dull, turn up the fun with Crunch. You were a nurse for 10 years and then broke into the comedy scene. And at that point, it was the alternative comedy scene, which sounds like a lot of fun. I recently interviewed Julian for his uh, appearance on Taskmaster and he was talking about it and it sounded so amazing. And he, he said to me, it was kind of, you know, where all of the outsiders found a place. And actually it was a safe space for me to talk about whatever I wanted to, because we were already a bunch of outsiders. You know, I was speaking to people who were already converted. What was it like for you when you initially broke onto the scene, you called yourself the sea monster? What were your intentions kind of going into comedy? Well, my I suppose my intentions were, I just wanted to find out if I could make people laugh professionally, really. And I didn't think that I could, but I, I thought about it so much and quite a few of my friends said shut up about it and do it or just shut up generally and I said all right well I will have a go and you know I really felt like I'd found my niche once it started to go okay I think to some extent because of um, TikTok and um, and that sort of thing a lot of people kind of don't realize that to do to do that comedy route live is so difficult and it goes wrong so many times before it goes right and I think that that's helpful because you know having I mean one thing that helped me from from being a nurse because of the environment that, that I worked in first of all we would have a lot of people coming in who are either very drunk or you know in, in a terrible mess didn't want to be there brought in by the police so they weren't they weren't very polite shall we say and also added to that, because I was in charge of the place for a few years, I was always wheeled out to tell people the things they couldn't have. So I was always the one that massively got it in the neck. So to be perfectly honest with you, you know, when people started shouting abuse at me, I thought most of it was terribly unimaginative. <laughs> and I'd heard a lot better when I was a nurse, <laughs> to be honest. So... It was a different, I mean, I know a lot of women that, that left comedy and quite a few men as well, because they said they just couldn't handle the degree of abuse. And to be honest, personally, I thought it was quite mild, but that was my experience that enabled me to do that. So I think I was a bit tougher in in many ways. Oh, God bless our NHS that... You know, that's oh, that's what you have it. to put up with. You've also said in an interview before, and I found this so interesting, that you felt perhaps women were better equipped for stand-up because we're used to more humiliation than men. And I think in that sense you were 
suggesting that the humiliation is because we're already commented on. Every woman I know has experienced heckling in the street, has experienced someone driving past and shouting something. Um, and I thought that was f fascinating. Well, I, th I think you're absolutely right. And I think it's a real toss up between what's worse, being really, really attractive and shouted at in the street or not being attractive at all and being shouted at in the street. And I think not being attractive at all or, you know, in a, in a conventional way sort of shades it really because in, in terms of being a better thing, um, because I, I kind of, I know like a lot of women that are gorgeous and I couldn't put up with the sort of sliming that men do to them, you know, and the way that they talk to them. I'd rather they just said to me, uh, oh, you know, you fat cow, you're really ugly. And I think, thank God for that, because I really don't want anything to do with you. And, it, you know, if someone said, oh, I really like you, and then decided to try and pursue me, I'm not quite sure how I'd how I deal with that, really. And so it's yeah. two ends of the spectrum, and both of them are equally frustrating, upsetting. So in my head, you know, um, from my work, because I was very professional as a nurse, little sort of heckle put down start up in your head. Uh, not that you want to sort of do a heckle put down on uh, someone that's that's very ill or, or disturbed, but we had a lot of drunk people in who would just come in looking for some, you, you know, some tranquilizers or something. And when you said no, they would let rip at you. And you just had to stand there and kind of be as nice and calm as possible and manoeuvre them out in the best way you could, rather than saying, you know, look at look at the fucking state of you. Or yeah. <laughs> like that, you know, sorry, swearing. Uh, but uh, yeah, just, you know, you, could, you, you just had to be professional. And as a comic, you can say anything you like to an audience because no one's stopping you. Mm. Well, it's exhausting, isn't it? Because actually what you've done there is told us that the experiences of a nurse versus a comic actually are the same in terms of female identity, in terms of saying you have to still think about how you look or you still have to be prepared for comments on it, regardless of if you're there to try and help and save someone or if you're there to try and make them laugh, which just highlights the spectrum that of how many women it affects, which is everyone. But I don't think it's necessarily that obvious. Absolutely. Also, I said, I interviewed, uh, or we had an interview with Jenny Eclair, who I love. I yeah, think she is great. unreal. We were talking about Taskmaster and I thought it was really amazing how honest she was because she was like, yes, I had an absolute hoot doing it and it was really fun, but I'm pissed off at how long it took them to ask me because I'm an incredibly successful comedian and I should have been asked a really long time ago. And I thought it was so interesting that now, even though we think we've come so far, and actually Rose Matafeo, we did a, a podcast with, and she said, I'm so grateful for women like Joe Brand who came ahead of me, who really paved the way for women because now we don't see female comic as a genre. But I wonder if that's necessarily true. Yeah, I, th I think, I mean, I think that it, it, it is changing. It's just going to take a very long time. And what's changed about it, first of all, is the numbers. You know, there are so many female comics now compared to when I started. And when I started, people would say, oh, well, he, he does one-liners, he's a surreal comic. And they would just say, she's a female comic. Like, that was a, a category of comic comic style, you know. 
Um, and to some extent that, that still exists, but that like, you know, there are female comics now who fit, who fit into those different categories. Uh, and maybe there were then when I started, but people just didn't see us like that. They just said, oh, that's a woman comic, mm. you know? So I think at some point in the future, it will, it will start to change, but the powers that be have got to sort of be very aware of that. And I think they are because there are far more women on panel shows than there used to be. And some weeks on things, they're, they're like all, all women and one man, you know, why have they let him on anyway? <laughs> <laughs> it's so, so true. So it's, it's changing, but it's taking ages. I know, always the way. You won a BAFTA for Best Female Performance in a Comedy Role for Getting On. And I wondered what it was like dipping your toe into comedic acting and how that came about and if you enjoyed doing something that was slightly different to stand-up. Yeah, I did really enjoy it, yeah. and um, But it, wouldn't, it wasn't something that I wanted to go in the direction of. I mean, Matt, t to me, like, my kind of... Um, big achievement really was a national film award um, where based on a, a novel that I'd written and I also wrote the script for it and also the, I didn't want to be in it right I'm in it and I know sort of some people sort of said oh god she's got herself a part in it but actually what happened was the part uh, they wanted me to play it was actually a male part and they asked me if it was all right to sort of you know, change it to a woman and would would I play it? But I think people just thought I was kind of like trying to elbow my way in. And what, what I really loved about that award was that it was voted for by real people that watch films. It wasn't voted for by kind of a group of people in the business, you know, sit, sitting in a room together. So that kind of um, meant a lot to me, really. In terms of your career and where you've gone i know you say and it really makes me smile that there wasn't really that much intention or planning you know you don't have a five-year plan you don't have a 10-year plan you just move where the world takes you yeah i mean i i didn't have a plan my plan was just a lower your expectations and b say yes to things if you like the sound of them and no if you don't and don't do certain things that make you feel uncomfortable. So, for example, I never did ads. And, um, you know, I find it sort of interesting how like Instagram is opened another sort of, you know, chapter, hasn't it, of um, sort of people getting behind products and that. And, and I, don't, I don't know. I feel uncomfortable at, about that. And people sort of say to me, well you know what like what is your problem with it and 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 then sneer at my answer because my answer is if i supported a product and then for some reason i wanted to slag that product off which i know is highly unlikely but i wouldn't be free to do it and that's what always constrained me in a way so i feel i've been I mean, I've been lucky in some ways. I never wanted to have loads of money and I never wanted to kind of tour around the world. I don't like flying, so, you know, and I wanted to enjoy my kids when they were little. Um, and, I, and I know people that, you know, I really admire them for, for doing it, but people that sort of go on tour when their kids are young and take them with them. And 
I, I just didn't want to be that stressed, to be honest with you. I just wanted to enjoy my life. And I feel lucky that the opportunities kept coming along, to be quite honest. And I think the other thing that's really important, because it follows you all the way through your life, is to treat people decently and, um, y y you know, to not be a knob, <laughs> really. And <laughs> um, it it's terribly easy to do when people are running around you and at your beck and call. It is so weird. I kind of find it a bit, you know... Uh, um, but I can I can see how it does sort of affect some people and ch and change their attitude, and I find that really sad when people expect it and when it turns them into something a bit grim. Well, as you say, you know, when you get up close to it, I've been at kind of events in the past where some kind of celebrity and their team is there, and often I think sometimes it can come a little bit from the team fanning the ego. I agree with you about that. I think there's an. That, that, that there is kind of fanning coming from a group of people who look after you. And obviously it's in their interest that you keep doing well too. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Or else you're not going to be able to afford to pay them. So it's it's a kind of two-way thing. But yeah, absolutely. No, I've seen that very much myself as well. And you just think, oh, for goodness sake, grow up. You can get your own cranberry juice. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> Let's come and talk about Bake Off and Extra Slice. It looks like an absolute hoot to shoot were you a fan of bake off before you landed the gig well let's just say i can't bake to save my <laughs> life and i have no patience whatsoever so um i did i did watch it but um you know once they'd kind of boiled an egg i was kind of in you know sort of no idea what anyone was talking about <laughs> lamination and all that kind of thing you know um and it's kind of quite hard to tell, isn't it, sort of just how good they are sometimes, the bakers, because I don't have any knowledge or skills to judge myself. I'm sure a lot of very good bakers watch it, so they do know, but I haven't got a clue. I always think, oh, that looks quite nice. And then Paul or Prue will say, God, what an awful mess that is, or, you know, it looks all right to me. Yeah. And I've never cared what stuff looks like, as long as it tastes all right anyway. Well, that's it, because it is a combination of art and baking, which, I mean, the skill of the bakers. And, and I feel sorry for them. I feel like with these shows, are, it really connects with people. And also the people on it, you know, this is such a, a moment for them. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And the pressure. It's the pressure. And then, you know, when they have to go home and you just, and you just want to just reach out and give them a big cuddle. Yeah, I mean, I, I did the, the kind of the comic when it was at the BBC, the comic relief one. It is very stressful. And I do think there's certain things they do, like they don't give you quite enough time so that you get even more stressed than you are. And if you've not even done that before and it's the first time you've appeared on something like that, the pressure must be enormous, you know. I know. And cameras. Yeah, absolutely. People aren't used to having a camera in their face as well. And I think it can be incredibly intimidating. Also, you want to appear well and also you want to do well. So it's a, it's a hard act to juggle, I think. But we all like watching disasters. Let's be honest. It's so true. They're the best moments when someone's cake, you know, they're having to walk towards Paul and Prue and yeah. it, it's just slid and you think, yeah. don't, just, just don't. <laughs> and they are the moments and it's horrible, isn't it? Because it, it does feel slightly cruel, but they are 
as you say, the moments that stick with you. You know, James Acaster doing Celebrity Bake Off a few years ago, he was absolutely unhinged because he was exhausted. Absolutely. If you look at your career, would you have expected to have landed a gig like Bake Off, an extra slice? Um, No, but that's mainly because I have no idea what to expect. You know, I get offered a lot of very weird stuff. And um, what I actually like about Bake Off, if I'm perfectly honest, doing Extra Slice, is I love Tom and he's really nice to work with. And um, a lot of the production crew I've worked on other stuff with. And, for example, um, our producers are hilarious. You know when people go, oh, they could be a comedian, they're so funny. And some people just are brilliant. And I've never had so much hilarious abuse hurled at me in my ear (laughs) as I do on Extra Slice. Um, Comedy abuse, I hasten to add. Um, And it's just like, you know, putting on a pair of old pants when I do (laughs) do Extra Slice because everyone's so familiar, the format's so familiar. The guests are always great and the bakers are a joy to meet. So, and it's silly as well. And I like that silliness, you know, um, that uh, that they come up with. So, yeah, it's just an absolute pleasure to do. Don't know what they're talking about half the time, but, you know, they <laughs> want someone like me who's ignorant. They do. I keep convincing myself. Do you think that the guests have always watched it, the celeb guests? I think they've watched it with one eye, maybe sometimes, <laughs> you know. But it's kind of it's it's an it's an odd combination, isn't it? Because yes, you do want them to know something, but the show very kind of blatantly says, you know, we're having a laugh here. So I think the combination of it's not that important to have watched it second for second, but if you've got an overview of it and it's it's about people's personalities on the show and that kind of thing. And everyone slags off Paul. And then Paul comes on <laughs> and he's got such a brilliant sense of humour and he takes everything that's thrown at him, you know. It's just a nice atmosphere, really. Yeah, I think it's really nice. We've seen that I think there's been a bit of an evolution in terms of TV watching. There was an era where TV was a little bit mean. I'm thinking like Big Brother, those kind of reality shows. And I think especially since the pandemic, these shows and these formats like Bake Off, uh, you've got the Goodwood one with Mel Gidroy, oh, Handmade yeah. on Channel 4. And shows like that actually are, I think it's because it's so happy and it really appeals. And even the jokes are said in jest are now with a kindness. You know, there's no malice there. And I think that that is potentially Bake Off and Bake Off and Extra Slices enduring appeal is that it's a place to feel safe and welcome and to have a laugh. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think it kind of proves, you know, like that there's always a cliche, isn't there? There's always like a story at the end of the of the news, you know, because you just watched sort of this awful destruction and these terrible stories. And then at the end, there'd be like a mouse that could tap dance or whatever it is. Or there would be a story, a heartwarming story about a charity. And, and you know, the, the generally held view was, was always, oh, thank God that's only like 30 seconds long because like good people being good and people being nice is so boring. 
but actually I'm not sure that it is, you know, and this is coming from the mouth of someone that goes on stage and says the most awful thing. But, you know, <laughs> we've all got a different side to us and I like the fact that we can relax and just kind of have a laugh and it's not, it's not a competition, shall we say, between the panel. They don't compete with each other or elbow each other out and I think... In the past, that has happened on, on panel shows. It's very competitive because comedians are competitive, you know. Yeah. Let's finish off on a nice note. What is your snack and drink of choice whilst watching telly? Um, I like just still water and some fruit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, all right. Well, it, weirdly, I don't really like sweet things that much. So I would go for kind of, I like interesting crisps with weird flavours. Examples, please. Well, you know, like 20 years ago, you could just get like Walker's crisps and you pretty much had like a choice of four. But uh, I mean, there's an absolute wealth of stuff out there that's got chilli and kind of mango and sort of grass and... <laughs> herbs and i just try everything you know and um and then some you get hummus crisps they're not all made out of potato anymore it's, it's just more exciting than it used to be so I, I like to have a snack that possibly i haven't had before as a bit of an experiment with a backup of a bag of prawn cocktail crisps always the prawn cocktail a reliable favourite. Well, Joe, thank you so much for coming on the Radio Times podcast. It has been an absolute pleasure. Not at all. And it's lovely speech. You cheers. If you enjoyed this episode, you might like to listen to my conversation with comedian Sarah Pascoe or my episode with Starstruck's Rose Matafeo. Both can be found by scrolling back through the Radio Times podcast feed. Thank you for listening to the Radio Times podcast with me, your host, Kellyanne Taylor. If you enjoyed listening to this episode, please do follow, rate and review wherever you get your podcast from. It helps other TV and film lovers find us. Until next Tuesday, happy viewing. <laughs>